Scripture reading comes from the book of Esther, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we're approaching our final lap in a sermon series that we've been doing on the story of Esther. And so if you're here for the first time today, I want to introduce you to two characters uh, in the story of Esther. And their names are Haman and Mordecai. Haman was the prime minister of Persia, and he was the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire, second only to King Xerxes. And so Haman was a man that possessed everything. He had social power, he had wealth, uh, he had an um, exclusive um, elite network of people, he had fame. Haman had everything that this world could offer except for one thing. The one thing that Haman did not have was the respect of a Jewish man named Mordecai. And because Mordecai neither showed homage or respect to Haman, Haman not only wanted to kill Mordecai, but Haman wanted to kill all the Jewish people. Because he had a negative opinion of one person, he had a negative opinion of their entire people. And this is classic racism. The philosopher David Livingston Smith uh, wrote a book called Less Than Human. And in this book, he talks about why we demean, enslave, and exterminate one another. And I want to read you an excerpt from this book on the first page of your bulletin. (laughs) 
Smith says the Holocaust is the most thoroughly documented example of the ravages of dehumanization. It's tempting to imagine that the Germans were uniquely cruel and bloodthirsty people. But these diagnoses are dangerously wrong. What's most disturbing about the Nazi phenomenon is not that the Nazis were madmen or monsters, it's that they were ordinary human beings. What is it that enables one group of human beings to treat another group as though they were subhuman creatures? It's very difficult to kill another human being up close and in cold blood. So when it does happen, it can be helpful to understand what it is that allows human beings to overcome the natural inhibitions they have against treating other people like game animals. The Nazis were explicit about the status of their victims. They were subhumans, and as such were excluded from moral rights that bind humankind together. It's wrong to kill a person, but permissible to exterminate a rat. To the Nazis, all the Jews and others were rats, dangerous disease-carrying rats. Uh, and we know this historically with the Hutus of Rwanda uh, labeling the Tutsis as cockroaches in order to justify clubbing them to death by the hundreds of thousands. We've seen this early on with white Americans looking at Native Americans as savages or as African Americans as pieces of property in order to enslave, rape, whip, hang, and murder them. Have you heard the expression that to a hammer everything looks like a nail. Well, for Haman, every Jew looked like Mordecai. And because of that, the entire Jewish people posed a threat uh, to Haman and his uh, insecure um, identity. And so as a result, Haman goes to the king, King Xerxes, and asks him permission to exterminate the Jews. And in Esther chapter 3, to give you an idea of how subhuman he looked at the Jews as, in Esther chapter 3, Haman says to the king, there's a certain people, a certain race, who live scattered throughout your kingdom that neither obey you or listen to your laws. And it would not be in your best interest to let them live. And you know what the king says? The king doesn't say, who are these people? You know what the king says? Very well, exterminate them and do as you please. And he gives them the legal sanction to commit this Holocaust uh, and genocide. And when you think about this conversation that is taking place amongst the two most powerful and privileged people in the Persian Empire. The two most powerful and privileged people in the empire, we see two things. That on the one hand, that racism happens at the institutional level. And at the institutional level, racism is the use or misuse of power to advantage some and to disadvantage others. It is the use or misuse of power to advantage some or disadvantage some, uh, depending on whose tribe you belong to. But it not only happens at the institutional level amongst the elite, the powerful and the privileged, 
But racism also happens at the individual level. And at the individual level, it is when we think that our ethnicity is superior and your ethnicity is inferior. Now, let me just level the playing field here for all of us this morning and say, all of us are racist to one degree or another. And the reason why I can say that is because every single one of us has been infected by the curse of sin. Now, it might not manifest itself in overt ways like wanting to commit genocide, but it does manifest itself in very, very, very subtle ways. I have had conversations with Korean Americans who say things like, I would never marry or date someone that was not Korean American. Really? You would never date? You would never marry someone that is not Korean American? I have had conversations with Chinese Americans who are dating Korean Americans, but there's some tension because their parents only want them to date Chinese Americans and not Korean Americans. When I lived in mainland China, it was evident that if you were from Singapore, Hong Kong, or Taiwan, that you looked down upon mainland Chinese people. And the history between Koreans and Japanese people is well, well documented. And my point is this. If we are prejudiced against people that look like us, whether you're Italian or French, Dominican or Puerto Rican, Chinese, Japanese, or Korean, if we are prejudiced against people that actually look like us, to use a biblical phrase, how much more are we going to be prejudiced against people that don't look like us? How much more are we going to be discriminatory towards people that do not have the same type of identity that we do? My professor, Michael Horton, once referred to racism as collective narcissism. It's collective narcissism because I love my group better than everyone else's group, above all others, because there is no one I love more than myself. And even within the Christian community, while we would welcome people that do not look like us into our church community as our brother and sister in Christ, I do wonder if we would be as readily welcome to welcome people that don't look like us as our brother and sister in law. Not just a part of our spiritual families, but also a part of our biological families as well. And so here, every one of us has to learn how to face our own shadow and do the hard work of excavating and digging deeply into our explicit and implicit biases that we have towards other people. Okay, and so whether that's making comments to people that look like me, do you know Kung Fu, like I used to get? Or people asking, complimenting me uh, on how good my English is, like I still get? Or to African Americans, you are so eloquent, I can't believe how articulate you are. Each and every one of us has to do the hard work of excavating our explicit and implicit biases uh, that each and every one of us has. Now, that's what racism is on an institutional level and an individual level. Now, why is racism wrong? 
None of us would want to be called racist, but rarely do we ever ask the question why it is wrong. And rather than taking a look at this from a sociological perspective, the way that I want to take a look at it this morning is from a theological perspective. Why is racism wrong? Well, in Acts chapter 17, when you take a look at the Bible, we talk about different races today, but when you take a look at Scripture, it only mentions one race, and that is the human race. And in Acts chapter 17, it says, from one man, God created many nations. From one man, he made many nations. In other words, we all come from the same ancestry and origin, that is Adam and Eve. And we are all therefore made in the image of God. And so what that means is regardless of the color of your skin, the shape of your eyes, the texture of your hair, or your gender, we have far more in common than we do different. Because every one of us is made uh, in the image of God, and therefore we all belong to one race, and that is the human race. However, the Bible is not colorblind, nor is it cultureblind. But the way that the Bible seems to talk about this is that within one race, there is a multitude of ethnicities. And in the Bible, a simple way of describing ethnicity is two things. Number one, geography, and number two, ancestry. So geography, where are you from? Ancestry, who are you from? This is why throughout the book of Esther, Mordecai is always referred to as Mordecai the Jew. Where you're from? and who you're from. And in the book of Revelation 21, we are given a vision of what heaven looks like. And in Revelation 21, it talks about how each and every one of us brings our ethnicity into eternity. That means that in heaven, there is a multitude of people singing in Swahili, in French, in Chinese, and in English. It is a place where we are all gathered together And you no longer have to go to Los Angeles or Mexico for a good taco. You no longer have to come all the way to New York for a good slice of pizza or a bagel. You no longer have to go to Lisbon for good octopus. It is a place where we are all gathered together. It is a melting pot of melting pots where no ethnic group is ontologically better than the other and where the only normativity is not white normativity, But the only normativity in heaven is that we are all children of God and we are all saved by grace. That is the only normativity that we see in heaven. And if this is the painting that scripture paints for us about us, that means two things. Number one, you should never feel superior over another ethnicity. And number two, you should never feel inferior to another ethnicity. Even if it means you go to a church where the majority is the minority and the minority is a majority. I hope that at no point you have felt ashamed or that our church is second class or that we are illegitimate or that we are not a true church Because that's certainly not the way that I feel, and that is certainly not the way that God feels about our church either. But Esther was a person that felt inferior, and she was not very comfortable in her own skin. 
which explains why for the past five years, she hid her Jewish identity. She was a Jewish chameleon living in a Persian palace. And the reason why she hid her identity is because she wanted to assimilate into the Persian Empire. And by assimilating into the Persian Empire, she would gain acceptance. And by gaining acceptance, she would acquire a happier, happier life. And to a certain degree, I can understand why Esther approached the way that she did. Uh, in many ways, the, 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 the tactical approach that she took was the opposite of identity politics because she disassociated herself from her ethnicity. And I know that for many of you, you can understand that as well. For myself, I grew up in communities where most people did not look like me. I remember when I was younger, my grandmother would pack me lunch and I would bring California rolls to school. Everyone else was eating ham and cheese sandwiches and I was so jealous. I would use chopsticks everyone else would use a fork. I would take off my shoes when I went home while everyone kept their shoes on when they went home. I had the hardest time not taking off my shoes when I went to my friends' homes, even though they kept it on. When I was in fourth grade, my grandmother used to dress me. And she made me wear this jacket. And it wasn't an American brand, it was an Asian brand. And the logo of this Asian brand was the head of a bunny. And I never knew why everyone laughed at me. I never knew why all my classmates would always laugh at me every time I wore this jacket. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that this logo, this head of a bunny, oddly resembled another logo of an adult magazine. When I was growing up, I hated being Asian. I just wanted to be white. I was like a, a square peg trying to fit in a triangular hole, and I just did not fit. And so I played sports, and I played a lot of sports because I realized that sports was one way of transcending even race and ethnicity. And we see this historically with Jackie Robinson in baseball, Bill Russell in basketball, and the Olympics, where even the North Koreans are invited to. Sports is a very, very powerful thing. And similarly, for Esther, it wasn't sports, but it was her beauty and politics that allowed her to ascend to where she got today. Have you heard the expression, some people are born on third base thinking that they hit a triple? That's talking about privilege. Esther was keenly aware that she was not born on third base, but that she hit a triple. And now that she had this power and this privilege, she did not want to lose it, hence hiding her identity. But it got to a point where Esther could no longer hide her identity, and the reason for that is because her people are on the brink of genocide and extinction. And what we see in this passage for the very first time is that Esther finally comes out of the closet and reveals her true identity. And the way that she goes about saving her people is by throwing two parties for the two men who made this mess. Two exclusive parties just for them, King Xerxes and Haman. And if you read with me in verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. 
So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked Queen Esther, what is your petition it will be given you? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And so Esther throws two parties for King Haman and uh, uh, for King Xerxes and for Haman. And in many ways, this is sort of a, an example of meekness. Meekness is not a word that we use anymore uh, in our regular vernacular, but we, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is harnessed power and strength. So think of a huge bodybuilder holding a tiny, tiny baby. That is what meekness is. And if you've heard the expression, if men, are, if the husband is the head, the, the wife is the neck that turns the head, this is clearly what is happening here. Because Esther throws two parties for King Xerxes, the first time he offers her up to half the kingdom, the second time he offers her up this half the kingdom once again. Meaning at this point, there is nothing she can say that he will refuse. And as she's throwing this party, uh, she has a request for him. And in verse 3 and 4, it says this. Then Queen, uh, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify uh, disturbing the, the king. Two times here in this verse, these two verses, we see the phrase, for I and my people. For the very first time, Esther goes public about who she really, really is and reveals instead of concealing her Jewish identity. And she says to the king, you know, if we were just sold as slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you because I know how super busy you are. And just think about how strategic that is for a moment because she herself was enslaved. There is no such thing as the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness in Persia. That's American. That didn't exist in Persia. And she says, if, if that was the case, if we were just being enslaved, I wouldn't have bothered you. And you could see the king nodding his head. But she said, she says, genocide, however, is different. And you can see him nodding his head even more. And Xerxes says, who is the man that would do this to you and to your people? And she strategically points at Haman and says, he is the man. And Xerxes is so infuriated that he slams his chalice down full of wine and storms off into the palace garden. Now, why does Xerxes leave? Well, I think the initial response is he needs to just chill out and let out some steam and cool down because he's so heated up. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why Xerxes leaves. But I do think that there is probably a better reason for why Xerxes leaves and goes to the palace garden. It's not only just to let off some steam, but Xerxes realizes that he is in a pickle. And the reason why Xerxes realizes that he's in a pickle is because he's the one that issued this law of genocide. And in Persian law, you could not reverse a law. Not even the king 
could reverse his own law because it was set in stone. And so the king realizes that he is stuck in a conundrum because his, he basically issued the legal sanction of his own wife's death, let alone her people. And so as he comes back into the room, he sees Haman begging for his life to Esther while Esther is reclining. And the reason why she's reclining is because that's how people ate back then, reclining. But when King Xerxes comes, he sees Haman right next to Esther, and he accuses her of wanting to molest her. Now, he probably knew that he wasn't trying to do that, but it was just yet another reason to do something bad to Haman. And immediately after he says this, the bodyguards put a bag over Haman's head. And one of the bodyguards says, just yesterday, Haman uh, erected a 75-foot pole to hang and impale Mordecai on it, the man that saved her life. And the king says, very well, go and impale Haman on the 75-foot pole that he made. And eventually, not only is Haman stopped, but so is the genocide. All because of Queen Esther, who saves her people from the brink of annihilation and death. And what we see here is a picture of the gospel. Because much like how Esther saved her people from death, Jesus is our Savior who saves us from death. And while Esther risked her life to save her people, Jesus did not risk his life to save us, but he willingly gave up his life to save us. Esther said, will you please spare my people? But in the gospel, God does not spare his one and only son, but he freely gives him up to die for our sins. Unlike Esther, who did not want to identify with her people, Jesus comes and he fully identifies with us. Superman finally becomes vulnerable. A child, a baby, who takes on flesh and bone and becomes vulnerable just like us, living the life that we should have lived and even dying the death that we should have died. For what? Our racism, our explicit, implicit biases, our prejudice, our discrimination. He dies for all of that and he takes on the weight of our sin upon his shoulders so that we would not have to die for our own sins like Haman did. But instead, all we get is grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. No matter how messed up we are, no matter how skewed our glasses are when we take a look at other people. Now, if that is the case, It means just a few things by way of application. When we think about the cross, the cross is not only a bridge that connects us to God, but the cross is also a sledgehammer that breaks down any walls of hostility between ethnicities. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, American or non-American. We are all made in the image of God. And we are all brothers and sisters in Christ with no group ontologically better than the others. The second thing I think at the very least the gospel means is that in order to be reconciled with people from another group, we must first be reconciled to God because before racism is a social issue, it is a sin issue. 
And there's something that deeply infects all of us. And so we really need to reclaim the theology of the Imago Dei, that we are all made in the image of God, if we're really going to fix racism. This is really what MLK banked everything that he did upon, that we are all made in the image of God. You know what it also means? Before we are reconciled with other groups of people, we not only need to be reconciled to God, but we also must be reconciled to ourselves. Particularly if you're a person of color coming from a culture that is shame-based. Where you might feel inferior. Where you might feel second class. You are not better nor are you worse. We are all made in the image of God. And therefore, this is how God has uniquely made you. And therefore, bring your fermented food to work. Enjoy it. Have everyone smell it. And do not be ashamed of it because this is how God has uniquely designed you. And when you're not given a seat at the table, you build your own chair. Because you have something unique to offer to the world and to the church that God has clearly gifted you with. And lastly, you know, Esther is trying to find favor with her husband, the king. And she's trying to sort of manipulate him to find that favor. And when it comes to God, the king, I want you to know that there is nothing that you need to do to make him love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. His favor is always upon you. And I want to close with one last quote on the first page of your bulletin from Sam Alberry, which I think that we can all relate to. And Alberry says that it has been happening most mornings recently. I wake up feeling crushed and exhausted. Condemnation. I'm doing everything wrong and everyone knows it. It feels like when I wake, the whole human race rolls its eyes and sighs. Oh, it's this guy. I don't know why this happens, just that it does and that it feels utterly real. And if this is what others think and why shouldn't they, then what must God think? After all, they only see the outside of my life. He sees the inside. So this is what I'm banking on. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever condemnation there might be from others, and in my better moments, I know the human race doesn't spend its time consumed with my daily feelings. This verse says in three words what I need to hear every day. Now, no condemnation. Three simple words. Can I dare to believe them? To condemn someone is to expose them because of what they have done. It's what I deserve. What have I done with the life God has given me? I have squandered it squandered opportunities on an hourly basis to love him and to love others. How can we even quantify this loss? I should feel crushed by the weight of it all. No condemnation means God will never count my sin against me. Even the most shameful things I've done will never be used against me. His disposition will forever be one of favor. He will always be for me, never against me. Let's pray together. Father, I, um, 
I not only want to pray for all of us, but I want to pray for our city and for our world um, and how we have uh, messed it up in so many ways because of the curse of sin that infects us all. So it is my prayer that you would uh, help us to see you clearly, help us to see ourselves very clearly, help us to see others very clearly as uh, broken image bearers of God, nevertheless as image bearers of God. Help us to love people, help us to love our brothers and sisters, and give us the eyes to see people the way that you see them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.